Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Tony Rikers. Well, good evening, friends, and welcome back to our final events of Bible Prophecy Seminar. Our topic tonight is called The Great Controversy. In our previous three lectures, we've been studying about more of a, a broad picture of the final events of Bible prophecy. We've talked about the signs of the times, the, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and how he will return to this earth, and what will take place when he does. But tonight, we want to begin to look at more of the finer details of what the final events of Bible prophecy will be all about. We're going to be looking at some very interesting topics over the next few nights. In fact, our next five lectures, they all go together to give us a big picture of what the final events of Bible prophecy really are telling us. Tonight, we have the great controversy. Tomorrow, we have the Antichrist, part one, part two. Then we have the seal of God. Then we have 666 and the mark of the beast. Then we have the USA and the new world order. These lectures will give you and I a big picture of what's taking place in our world today, how it will affect us, and what the final details of the final events of Bible prophecy will be all about. But tonight we are talking about the great controversy. You know, there was a man in the United States of America. He had an accident with some high-power electrical lines, and he asked his insurance company to pay him compensation for the accident that he sustained when he was shocked by those power lines. The insurance company refused to do so. They refused to do so because on the grounds of this accident was in legal terms, an act of God, they said, we are not paying for the accident. Well, this particular man thought, well, if this accident was an act of God and the insurance company won't pay for the accident, someone's going to have to pay. And if it's an act of God, if God's responsible, God's going to pay. So he decided to take 55 of the Christian churches in the city which he lived to court to get the compensation he required. The churches went to court, the case went on, and during the trial, one of the Christian ministers from the church, one of the local churches, said, I don't believe the expression an act of God is right. It's being wrongly used. I believe that it should be called an act of the devil. It was an act of God. It was an act of the devil. You know, friends, as we look at our world today, we see lots of sorrow, suffering, sadness, and tragedies. Who is responsible for the suffering in our world today? As you look around our world, it doesn't take you long to become very aware that there is an evil power at work on planet Earth. Everywhere we look, we see evidences of terrible tragedies, evidences of suffering, evidences of sadness and death. Who is responsible? Many blame God. Many say, well, if there's a God in the heaven, if he, he is loving and kind and good, why are we having so many difficulties, so much suffering, so much pain on planet Earth? And that's a fair enough statement. Often we hear the, the, uh, the question asked, why did God allow this to happen to me? Why is there so much suffering? Why doesn't God do something? Is it an act of God or is it really an act of the devil? To understand this question, we must go right back back to heaven itself and find out what is happening in our world, why it is the way it is, and what was the foundation of the troubles we face day by day. We are going to find that the Bible tells us that the woes and the sufferings of this earth actually began 
way back there in heaven. Notice the Bible in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 and 8, what it says. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 and 8, it says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. Here we see an amazing statement in the Bible, almost a bit of an oxymoron. It says, there was war in heaven. And when you think of heaven, you don't think of war. You think of peace, happiness, and joy. But the Bible tells us that heaven's a real place with real beings. And the Bible tells us that at some stage in past history, there was actually war in heaven. The dragon and his angels fought against God. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is this. To start with, who is the dragon? Let's try now to identify some of these characters in this verse. Who is the dragon that was warring in heaven? Well, the Bible's very clear in verse 9, Revelation 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. So here we find the Bible very, very clearly says that the, the war in heaven with the dragon fighting, that the dragon is who? It's the devil or Satan as he is known in our world today. The dragon is Satan or the devil. And this whole controversy started way back there in heaven with a rebellion against the government of God led by one whom we call the devil or Satan. Back in heaven, before Lucifer fell, or before the devil fell, his name was Lucifer. But this began way back there in heaven, where Satan himself began to war against the government of God. But we ask ourselves the question, how could there be a devil in heaven? Did God create an evil angel? Did God create the devil? No, friends, God didn't create the devil. God created a perfect angel. It's just that this perfect angel made a devil of himself. The Bible tells us that Satan was made. He was created as the highest or one of the highest angels in heaven. He was called the covering cherub. But it tells us that this perfect angel made a devil out of himself. Isaiah describes in Isaiah chapter 14 what actually took place in heaven. Notice how Lucifer or Satan fell. Isaiah 14 verse 12 to 14, the Bible says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? In other words, what are the issues? How did you fall? Why are you cast out of heaven? How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? And it gives us the answer. It says, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Here we find Satan himself exalting himself to be like God. I will be like the most high. I will exalt my throne above the stars of heaven. In other words, Satan had an eye problem. I was the problem in Satan's life, in Lucifer's life. He wanted to be God himself. He wanted to be on the throne of God. In other words, he tried to overthrow the government of God. He tried to overthrow the laws of God, the establishment of God, the throne of God. He attempted a coup against the God of heaven. He decided that the laws and the government of God, he could run better himself. And he decided to break the law of God and to follow his own way and his own will. Ezekiel 28, verse 14 and 15 tells us, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. 
Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity or lawlessness, we could say, was found in thee. That word iniquity simply means lawlessness. Bible tells us here about Lucifer. He was a perfect angel. He was a glorious being. He was perfect in all his ways until he became lawless. He rebelled against the law of God. He rebelled against the government of God. He broke God's laws. He decided we don't need laws. We're holy beings. We're holy angels. We don't need laws to govern us. And the Bible says he was perfect in all his ways until iniquity or sin or law-breaking was found in Lucifer. Lucifer began to question the fairness of God. He began to talk to the other angels and spread rumors and put doubts and questions into their minds. Why do we have laws? Lucifer said, we're holy beings. We can govern ourselves. God's just being unfair. God isn't allowing us to grow to our full potential. And as a result of this questioning and doubting God and his word and his law and his government, heaven was divided into two camps. It was the angels with God who were faithful to the government and the laws of heaven. And there were those angels who decided to go with Lucifer and rebel against the government of God and have their own laws, their own rules, and their own regulations. And this divided heaven. And this is why we find in the book of Psalms, Psalms 103, verse 20, the Bible says this, Bless the Lord, ye his angels that excel in strength, that do his commandments. The dividing line between the angels of Satan and the angels of God is that the angels of God do his commandments. They are obedient to the law of God and the laws of heaven. Heaven was divided into two camps. Satan attacked the law of God. He attacked the government of God. He wanted his own throne to be set up, his own laws, his own government. And as a result of this, the Bible tells us that Satan was cast out of heaven. Notice Revelation 12 verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Satan was cast out of heaven. There's no more place found there for Satan and his angels. They rebelled against the government of God. They were cast out of heaven. And in verse 12 of Revelation 12, it goes on and says, Therefore rejoice ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Here we find Satan, his angels, cast out of heaven. And he continues the rebellion against the government of God. He, re- he continues that rebellion against the government of God down here on this earth. And people will often say, well, why didn't God... Just do away with Satan. And that's a good question, isn't it? Why didn't God, if he's almighty, if he's all-powerful, which he is, if he is the creator of Satan himself, who was once Lucifer, who became Satan and the devil, why didn't God just go, poof, and there's no more devil, there's no more Satan, there's no more temptation and suffering and pain on this earth? If God has all the power in the universe, why didn't he do that? That's a good question. I believe the reason why uh, God didn't do that is this. Satan was questioning God. Satan was arguing against God. He was spreading lies and rumors to the universe. Now, if God had have come along and just said, look, 
you're going against me, poof, and just got rid of his enemies, that would have put a lot of argument back into Satan's arguments, wouldn't it? The universe would have started to think, well, maybe, maybe Satan was right in the first place. Maybe God is unjust. It's a bit like our world today. If you have a, a political leader that arises, just say it's in our own country of Australia, and the opposition leader in, in parliament starts to put the government down. We don't like your laws. We don't like your regulations. We don't like your policies. And if our prime minister stood up and said, please take the opposition leader out and execute him, that would add a lot of argument to the opposition leader's argument, wouldn't it? We would start to think, well, maybe the opposition leader is right. Maybe our prime minister is unfair, unjust. Maybe we don't want him as our leader and our, govern our government. And it was the same in heaven, friends. If Satan was just destroyed by God, it would have added to his argument that God was unfair, unjust. Satan needed to have time to show his true colors, to show the fruits of what his government would be like, to show the fruits of what the whole of the universe would become like if we would follow his laws, his rules, and his regulations. So God allowed Satan to continue. He cast him out of heaven, and when he was cast out of heaven, he came down to this earth, and he continued the war against God on this earth. Sadly, he deceived our first parents, Adam and Eve, into joining him in his rebellion. As a result, this world has been turned into chaos. Who is responsible then for the suffering that we see on this earth? Ultimately, Satan is the one who is responsible. He is the one that is deceiving mankind to break the law of God, to break the rules and regulations God's put in place for our safety and security. And that's why there's so much suffering in our world today. It's simply because mankind breaks God's Ten Commandments. If I put this talk into a little nutshell, the reason why we are in so much sadness and suffering in this world is because we have been deceived into breaking God's law. Just think about it, friend. If the whole world simply kept God's simple Ten Commandments, we would have a better world, wouldn't we? But for 6,000 years, Satan's been in controversy with God over his law. He wants us to be deceived into his rebellion and break the law of God. What we see in our world today is simply a result of breaking God's commandments. And the secret strategy of Satan right now, tonight, is to get you and I to break the commandments of God, to join him in his rebellion, to go onto his side, to follow his throne, his, his government, his laws, his rules, his regulations. And sadly, many people in our world have decided we're going to go Satan's way. He spreads lies like, freedom do what thou wilt you know one of the famous satanists of our our era wrote the satanic bible and the law of the satanic bible is basically this do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law do whatever feels good whatever tastes good doesn't matter what it is if it satisfies your desires that's the whole of the law but god has put rules regulations and restrictions in our life not to make life difficult for us but as boundaries to make us happy the same way we put boundaries in our homes for our children god has put boundaries on our lives because he knows when we go out of the boundaries we find ourselves sorrowing suffering in sin and sadness but satan's very cunning satan has spread lies not only through the world but he has spread a lot of lies through the christian church because many christians even today have been deceived by satan's lies satan's sophistry to believe that we don't need to worry about God's law anymore. That the commandments have been done away. 
Satan has five major lies, profound lies, that he spreads through the Christian church to deceive the people in the churches to believe they can break the law of God and it's okay. I want to go through those five particular lies right now. The first lie that Satan is spreading through the world is that Jesus did away with the Ten Commandment law. Have you heard that before, friends? When Jesus came down to this earth and died on the cross, he did away with the Ten Commandment law. Is that true? Friends, that is a lie of the devil. Jesus never did away with the law. Notice this verse in Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Here Jesus simply says, I have not come to destroy the law or the prophets. It's clear, isn't it? But he goes on and says this. Notice what it goes on in verse 19. It says, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Friend, if you are breaking God's commandments and you are teaching others it's okay to break those commandments, Jesus himself just said, you are the least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what he's saying is you're on Satan's side. He goes on in verse 19, continues, But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, my friends, never did away with God's commandments. The Ten Commandments are still there. Jesus didn't do away with them. In fact, Jesus kept the commandments. He magnified the law. He kept it holy. In fact, if Jesus did away with the, with the Ten Commandments, he actually did away with the definition of sin. You know, in the Christian world and even the world at large, we'll often hear that word sin. What is sin? It's one of those words we hear of the word sin and we always think, well, sin is something bad. But what is, a def what is the definition of sin? The Bible is very, very clear of what the definition of sin is. In 1 John 3 verse 4, the Bible tells us, Whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression or breaking of the law. The definition of sin is the transgression or breaking of God's law. It's when you and I break the commandments of God, we are now classed as a sinner. Notice Romans 4 verse 15. It says, For where no law is, there is no transgression. Now, if Jesus came and he did away with the law of God, he's actually done away with the definition of sin. In other words, there's no such thing as sin anymore. In fact, if Jesus did away with the commandments, he did away with the need of himself. You see, friends, if there is no such thing as sin, if there's no law, sorry, there is no such thing as sin anymore. And if there's no such thing as sin, if there's no sin, well, there's no need of grace anymore, is there? And if there's no need of grace, well, friends, it's very clear that there's then no need of Jesus. Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, friends. He came, he magnified the law, he kept the law, and he told us that whosoever breaks these commandments and teaches others to do so, he's least in the kingdom of heaven. Another lie that Satan brings out is this one, lie number two. Jesus gave us new commandments. He says, when Jesus came, he did away with the Ten Commandments, but he just gave us two commandments, new ones. Is that true, friends? Did Jesus give us new commandments? Let's find out about this. We find this misunderstanding really comes from the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. 
In Matthew 22, we find Jesus teaching the people, and a particular man comes to Jesus and he says, which is the greatest commandment? Which is the greatest commandment? Now notice what Jesus said, Matthew 22, verse 37 to 39. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. People say, well, there's the new commandments. Jesus said, love God supremely and love your neighbor as yourself. This is love, everybody. That's the commandments that Jesus gave. But we have to ask ourselves the question, how new are these so-called new commandments that Jesus gave? Upon examining the, the, the text of Scripture in Matthew 22 and the words of Jesus, we find that Jesus didn't say anything new. He was quoting word for word from the Old Testament. That's all he was doing. This was nothing new. He was quoting the Old Testament scriptures. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Now, Jesus quoted this word for word. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. He also quoted Leviticus 19, verse 18. But thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Jesus wasn't quoting anything new when he was asked the question, which is the great commandment? He was simply summarizing the Ten Commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, and thy neighbor as thyself. You see, friends, if you look at the Ten Commandments, it's really broken into two sections. The first four commandments deal with our relationship with God, and the last six commandments deal with our relationship with man. If you are loving God supremely and your neighbor as yourself, you are keeping God's Ten Commandments. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't be stealing from him. You won't be, won't be committing adultery with his wife. You won't be lying and gossiping about him. If you love God supremely, you will find yourself being obedient to God. You won't have other gods. You won't use his name in vain, etc. Jesus is simply summarizing the Ten Commandments, not giving new commandments, but summarizing what was already there. The entire law, friends, can be summarized in one word, love, love to God and our fellow man as ourselves. This is what the essence of the gospel is really all about. Well, lie number three, Satan's lie number three. He says grace, this is, a, this is a big one in the Christian world, grace does away with God's law. Have you heard that before, friends? Grace does away with the law of God. Is that true? Does grace do away with God's law? Let's have a look at this very, very important question. I want to begin reading a verse from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Talking about grace. Now, grace is one of my favorite subjects. Notice this verse. It says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Friends, I want to encourage you tonight that you and I, we are saved by grace. We are saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are saved by that grace alone. We are not saved by our works. I can't work my way all the way to heaven, as many of the false religions of our world try to do. We are saved by grace, friends. I hope there's no Christians here tonight that believe they're going to be saved by their works. Friends, we are saved by grace through faith. That's how we are saved. Let's not fall into, into the pharisaical doctrine of being saved by our works. Grace is the power which God uses to forgive us of our sins and to keep us from sinning. 
But the question, of course, comes ultimately, if we're saved by grace, does grace then do away with God's law? Does grace do away with the law of God? Friends, it doesn't do away with the law of God. When grace comes into our life, that grace is to be a motivating power to bring you into obedience, not disobedience. You are already in disobedience when grace comes into your life. Notice what it says here in Romans 3 verse 31, answering this question of does grace do away with the law of God? It says, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Ephesians chapter 2 says, for by grace are ye saved through faith. And then Paul asks the question, do we then make void the law of God through faith? Do we throw it away? He says, God forbid. In other words, absolutely not. We establish the law in our life. Friends, we establish the law of God in our life through grace. According to this passage, we need faith in order to keep God's law. When we access grace through faith, faith doesn't do away with the law. It establishes the law in our lives and in our hearts. Well, what is the role then of grace? How does all this work? So many Christians get themselves all confused about this. What is the role of grace? Romans 1 verse 5, it says, By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. Grace is for what? Obedience, not disobedience. You are already in disobedience to God's law. You're a sinner when grace comes into your life. And when that grace comes, it now empowers you to bring you back into harmony and obedience to God's law. Not to be saved by the works of the law, but by that grace working in your life, it pulls out the sin of life and brings you back into harmony with the law of God. That's what grace does. Romans 6 verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. What is sin? It's breaking the law of God. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. When you are under grace, you are not breaking the law of God. Sin will not have dominion over you. That's how clear the word of God is. Under the law means we are living in sin and are under condemnation of the law. Grace frees us from the power of sin. Let me illustrate it this way. Let me illustrate it with an example that we can all understand. Just imagine I'm driving my car down the highway one day. As I'm driving down the highway, in the rear vision mirror, all of a sudden, <clears throat> I see those blue flashing lights that make us all jam our foot on the brake and our hearts are pounding very, very fast. What have I seen? I've seen a police officer. I look at my, my speedo and I'm doing 120 kilometers an hour in a 90 kilometer zone. The officer pulls me over. He comes up to the window, as they do, and he says, may I see your driver's license? And you give the driver's license. And then he says, Mr. Rikers, did you realize that you were exceeding the speed limit by 30 kilometers an hour? You were doing uh, 120 kilometers an hour in a 90K zone. And I would say, yes, officer, I, I do realize that. Now, just imagine, this doesn't usually happen, but just imagine if I said to the officer, look, officer, I realize I was breaking the law. I am sorry for that. Will you please give me grace? Now, just imagine that the police officer says to me, okay, Tony, you are breaking the law, but I am going to give you grace because you're sorry for breaking that law. Now, once this officer has given me grace for breaking the law of God, for breaking the law of the land, how do I drive my vehicle? 
How would I drive my vehicle? Would I drive my vehicle in such a way that when I took off from this police officer in his car, that I would plant the foot, hang a couple of donuts on the highway, drive up, up the highway at 150 kilometres an hour. People on the side of the highway are flagging me down, slow down, you're going too fast. And I wind the window down and say, it's okay, I'm under grace. Is that how it works, friends? Is that how it would work in your life? Or would you drive away from the police officer, having been given grace, now being highly motivated to drive according to the speed limit of the land. That's how you would drive. But friends, there are many Christians in our world today that believe that they've broken the law of God, that they've sinned, and that Jesus Christ has given them grace because they've asked for forgiveness, but now they can live their life however they like. Friends, the grace of God does not give you a license to break or throw away the law of God. God's grace through Jesus Christ, of whom we access by faith, is a motivating power to bring us back into harmony with God's law. Not to break the law of God. Friends, grace doesn't do away with the law. Grace establishes the law in our minds, in our hearts, that we will live in obedience to the God of heaven. That's how grace works in our life it motivates us to obedience not to disobedience you know some christians have come to me and have said tony the law the ten commandments have been done away with and i'll say okay so the ten commandments have been done away with so as christians does that mean that we can now kill and steal and and commit adultery with your wife and use and use god's name in vain and they'll always say oh no 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 we, we, we can't do that so what are you saying is the Ten Commandments either there or is it not? Many Christians are saying it's been done away with when at the same time they're saying we should be keeping it. Does that make any sense? Friends, that's absolute nonsense. God's law has never been done away with and the grace of God, the grace of Jesus Christ will bring you back into harmony with God's law, not give you a license to break it. It's a lie of the devil when people come along and say grace has done away with God's law. It hasn't done away with it, friends. It's empowering you to be obedient to that law. Well, what's another lie that Satan has? Lie number four. Satan says the Ten Commandments were for the Jews and part of the Old Covenant. People sometimes come along and they'll say, but Tony, wait a minute. I'm a New Covenant Christian. The Ten Commandments, that was for the Jews. I'm a New Covenant Christian. And I'll say, good, so am I. I'm a New Covenant Christian as well. Let's now see what it means to be a new covenant Christian. Notice what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. This is the new covenant. What is it? I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. The Bible doesn't say when we are new covenant Christians that the law has been thrown away. The new covenant Christians means that through the grace of Jesus Christ, God wants to put that law in our minds, in our hearts, that we are living in obedience to his ways. Friends, the Ten Commandments are not just for the Jews. They weren't just for the Old Covenant. They were for time and for eternity, and God's grace can empower us to be obedient to that law. The law of God is to be written in our minds and our hearts. That's where God wants to place that law today. And the last lie that Satan comes up with is an interesting one. He says the Ten Commandments were nailed to the cross. When Jesus died, the Ten Commandments were nailed to the cross. And I'm sure you've heard that one before somewhere. Now, the Ten Commandments, friends, for a start, weren't nailed to the cross. 
the Bible teaches us very clearly that there were two main laws that were given to the children of Israel. Two main laws. One of those laws was the Ten Commandments written with the finger of God in tables of stone telling us it was eternal. The other law was given by Moses and written by Moses and was dealing with the sanctuary service particularly. Notice these two verses bringing these two laws out. Exodus 31:18, And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. There's God's Ten Commandments given to Moses. But the other law we find here in Deuteronomy 31:9, It says, And Moses wrote this law, and delivered it unto the priests, the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and unto all the elders of Israel. The Bible clearly teaches that there are more, is more than one law. When one compares the characteristics of these two laws, it is self-evident that they are totally different. Let's have a look at the uh, characteristics of these laws in a summary point here. The Ten Commandments versus the ceremonial laws that was written by Moses and dealt with the sanctuary service. The Ten Commandments were spoken by God. The ceremonial law was spoken by Moses. The Ten Commandments were written by God. The ceremonial law was written by Moses. The Ten Commandments were written in stone. The ceremonial law was written in a book. The Ten Commandments, we are told, are everlasting. But the ceremonial law finished at the cross. It was what was nailed to the cross. The Bible tells us that when Jesus died, the ceremonial laws were nailed to the cross symbolically with him because the ceremonial laws were all pointing forward to the Lamb of God, the true sacrifice that was to come. That was Jesus Christ. Notice Colossians 2 verse 14. It says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. In that law was the, the uh, instructions of how to sacrifice in the sanctuary. And how the whole sacrificial system would work. It all typified, it all pointed forward to Jesus Christ, the true Lamb of God that was to come as the Savior of the world. When he was nailed to the cross, friend, that law was nailed there with him. It was no longer needful for us to sacrifice lambs and to go through an earthly sanctuary service. We now live under the new covenant by faith in Jesus Christ. By his grace, we are saved and we access that by faith. But it wasn't the Ten Commandments that was nailed to the cross. That was written by the finger of God in tables of stone. That lasts for eternity. It was a ceremonial law that was nailed to the cross, not the Ten Commandments. Well, what then is the purpose of the Ten Commandments, really? What really is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? You know, Romans 7 verse 7 says, I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. You see, the purpose of God's Ten Commandments for you and I today is really to point out our sins. You see, the Bible talks about the law of God in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 23 to 25, and it says it's like a mirror. The law of God is like a mirror, and if you and I look into the law of God, it reflects back to you and I what we are. It tells us, basically, that we are sinners. We read that verse before, whosoever transgresses the law or breaks the law is a sinner. This is the definition of sin. So when you and I look into the Ten Commandments, it reflects back to you and I like a mirror that we are sinners because every one of us, the Bible tells us, have sinned and come short 
of the glory of God. Now, when we see ourselves in the mirror, what do we do? You know, sometimes in the morning we wake up. I don't know how you wake up when you wake up in the morning, but sometimes I wake up in the morning and I walk out of my bedroom and I feel like I'm half dead and I walk into the bathroom and I look into the mirror and you get a shock. You got your hair all over the place. Maybe you woke up in the morning and your wig's half fallen off and your your makeup's smeared across your face and you've got dribble hanging down the side of your lip from the night and you look into the mirror and what does the mirror tell you? The mirror, my friends, is telling you and I that we're a mess, aren't we? It's telling us that we are a mess. Now, what do we do next? We've got a couple of choices here. We can either pull the mirror off the wall and we can smash the mirror and say, that's not true, I look pretty good. Or we can get the mirror off the wall and we can rub the mirror on our face and on our hair and try and clean ourselves up. That doesn't work. But the third thing the mirror can do is that the mirror, which is like the law of God, can point us to the wash basin where we can go and we can clean ourselves up. You see, friends, the mirror can't clean ourselves up, can it? It's just pointing out what we are, that we are sinners. The law of God can't save us. It just points out that we are sinners, but it points us to the wash basin, which is Jesus Christ, where we can clean ourselves up. We can wash ourselves, as the Bible says, in the blood of the Lamb. We can be cleansed from that sin. And then we can look as God would have us to look again. That's the purpose of the law, to point us to Jesus Christ, that he is the one that can save us, that he is the one that can wash us and clean us and make us presentable to his heavenly Father again. That's what the mirror does. That's what the law of God does. We can't use the law to clean ourselves up, but it points us to Jesus Christ, who is the only one, my friend, that can clean up your sin-sick soul tonight. That is what the mirror is for. That is what the law of God really is all about. You know, friends, in our world today, it's been estimated that there are more than 35 million laws that have been drafted to control human behavior. But in just 297 words, God drafted a code of conduct that in essence covers all human behavior. It's simply his Ten Commandments. His Ten Commandments, if we would live those Ten Commandments in our life through the grace of Jesus Christ, we would have a happy world. In 1 John 5 verse 3, the Bible says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. This is God's will, friends, that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not grievous. 1 John 2 verse 3, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. You see, friends, this controversy, this great controversy that we are in revolves around the commandments of God or the commandments, the laws, the regulations of Satan. The controversy is who will you obey in your life? Who will you and I obey? Jesus said in, or the Bible says in 1 John 2 verse 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Friends, tonight God is making it real clear. If we say we follow God and we know him and we break his commandments, we don't keep his commandments, Jesus simply is telling us, you're a liar. You're on the enemy's side. You're not on my side. Satan's secret strategy, my friends, today is to get you and I to be disobedient to the law of God. Satan lost heaven because of disobedience. Adam and Eve lost the Garden of Eden because of disobedience. And the question, of course, friends, is, how is it going to be with you? Will you disobey God? 
The issue today, friends, is who will you and I believe? Who will, who will you and I follow? Will you and I follow a loving God, or will you decide to follow a fallen angel named Lucifer, Satan, and the devil? We find ourselves giving allegiance to these different powers by who we will obey. Adam and Eve lost the right to eat from the tree of life because they disobeyed God's commandments. But notice what the Bible tells us about those who go into the kingdom of heaven to once again eat of the tree of life. Notice Revelation 22 verse 14, what the Bible says. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Friends, the Bible's telling us that we lost the tree of life. We lost eternal life because of disobedience to God's law and God's commandments. But we're also told those who go through the city of God, through the gates of gold, as it were, and eat of the tree of life, God distinguishes those people as they who do his commandments. Friends, is it your desire tonight to be amongst those who go into the city of God and eat of the tree of life to be a commandment doer? Not to be saved by your works, but by the grace of God working in our lives to be motivated to be obedient to the God of heaven. Jesus simply says to you and I tonight, friends, John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. This is God's call for our hearts tonight. If you love me, he simply says, keep my commandments. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The duty of man, friends, tonight is to be obedient to the God of heaven. Satan is warring against God, his law, and his government. And the reason why the world is in the mess it is in today is because simply we break God's law. If all kept God's law, it would be a better world. And I want to encourage you tonight to be obedient to the God of heaven, to be obedient to the commandments of God and allow him to put those commandments in your mind, in your heart, that you can be a living expression of the commandments of God. You know, friends, you might be asking yourself this question. What has this got to do with the final events of Bible prophecy? Tonight we have seen that Satan's warring against God, his truth, and his law. And we are going to discover now in our next couple of lectures that Satan is actually working on this earth through a particular power to deceive the inhabitants of this world into breaking God's law. We are going to continue our study on in our next lecture. It's entitled The Antichrist Part 1 and 2. Who is the Antichrist? When and where does he arise? We're going to find there are 12 crystal clear identifying marks given from the Bible telling us exactly who this power is. This message was made available by Cornerstone Ministries. For more resources like this, visit cornerstone-ministries.org. You've been listening to Go Teach All Nations here on 3ABN Australia Radio.
Each new day, God gives you a choice to make, blessing or cursing, life or death. It's in your hands. The choice is yours to make. So what will you choose today? Therefore choose life that you and your descendants may live. Will you love the Lord your God and obey His voice? For God is your life and the length of your days. So what will you choose? Will you choose life? Life or death, blessing or cursing, the choice is in your hands. How will you choose to And so this day, I have a choice to make, blessing or cursing, life or death. How will I live? The choice is mine to make. I choose Jesus Christ. choose life that me and my descendants may live I will love the Lord my God and obey His voice for God is my life and the length of my days today I choose Him I choose Jesus Christ so what Choose life that you and your descendants may live. Will you love the Lord your God and obey his voice? For God is your life and the length of your days. So, what will you choose? Will you choose life? Hi, I'm Casey Butler and I'm here today to share with you some personal experiences that I've had with God. Have you ever heard of stories where people who have not grown up in a Christian environment, come to the point in their life where they question, is God real? Is he out there? Does he care about me personally? I've heard a number of stories like that. People just get to the point where they feel a void in their life and they long for for something more. They are convinced there must be something greater and so they, they question, is God real? And they start seeking after God. 
and many of them find him. I've also heard of a number of stories too where people who have grown up in a Christian environment where they know all about God, they've learnt so much as of in their, their childhood stories about Jesus and, and many different experiences, they also come to the point where they question, is God real? Does he care about me personally? I was one of those people. I grew up in a, a Christian environment and um, went to church every week for as long as I can remember. And I studied the Bible every day and prayed and did all of those devotional kind of things. And yet I came to the point in my life where I asked that very question, is God real? Does he care about me personally? I wanted an experience that wasn't just head knowledge because I've grown up understanding and knowing so much about God and yet it just seemed like something was missing in my heart. I just felt something was was not right. I, I wanted to know that God was real, that his love for me was 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 personal and, and went right to my heart. And I didn't have that. So I prayed. I began praying to God for a deeper experience. I, I prayed that he would that he would show me Jesus, that he would give me an appreciation of his love for me. And he answers my prayer in some interesting ways. One of the most significant situations that happened to me was I was unexpectedly, I guess, sort of thrown into a difficult circumstance and I couldn't control it. I had nothing that I could do in the situation to control it except for pray. And so immediately I began praying just in my head, in my thoughts, just asking God for very specific things to help me in that particular situation. And what was astonishing to me was right before my very eyes, God answered every detail of the prayer that I prayed in my mind. I hadn't spoken it out loud or anything. And I was just blown away. In fact, I, I pondered that God had answered every detail like that right before my eyes, right in that instant of need for months. It just got right to my, my heart that who am I that God would even recognize every thought and go about answering it. And I knew that in order for him to answer those, the things that I'd asked for, he had to send angels from heaven um, and he had to just work in the circumstances I was in in a powerful way to be able to accomplish what I'd asked for just in the spur of the moment and in my need. So I, I just for months was thinking, why me, Lord? <laughs> why did you do that for me? Like, yeah, that just, that really did something in me. But there was more that God did in my life. Like I, that was one experience. But during this time where I was, I was seeking to know if God's real, I had some other experiences as well. And one of them was I was out in the garden, um, actually in the, the orchard that is at our home, and I was pondering Christ's sacrifice for me. And I was really struggling to appreciate it. I could, like I knew it all in theory, but and I was thinking about it, but it just didn't seem like it. 
I appreciated it in my heart and I was trying hard to appreciate it. I was praying to God, wanting to, to understand what he, you know, what he'd done for me and, and have it mean something deeper. And as I walked, I was walking back up to the house and I came across just in the particular path that I went, at my feet was a red and black feather. And as soon as I saw it, I just I just picked it up quickly and I was just amazed, immediately amazed, because this feather was the tail feather of a glossy black cockatoo. It's a cockatoo that we have here in New South Wales, uh, in Australia, and it um, it's a sort of a threatened species. So to be able to find a feather from this this bird that was you know all black with a, a patch of red in it was just like so rare and um i i'm a bit of a bird watcher i like to see wild birds native birds and um, identify them and keep a list a record of all the different species that i've seen so i knew as soon as i saw this feather that it was something special and as soon as i saw it i it just it touched me i thought wow because in light of what I had just been thinking about, I had been thinking about Christ's sacrifice for me. And here, this feather, it was, you know, black with red. And to me, it was saying, God was saying to me, my my blood, the blood of my sacrifice, symbolized by the red color of the feather, was on top of the black on the feather, which is like Christ's blood covers my blackness, the blackness of my sin and, and the evil in my heart. And that just the fact that God used the feather and that showed me that he knew my interests, he knew my passions, he knew what I loved and enjoyed about nature and life. The fact that he used that at that moment, that got deep in my heart too. And I realized that, wow, God knows me. He cares for me. He knows my struggles. He knows how I'm seeking him and what I'm wanting to know about him and how and how I'm wanting to know he is real so God responded um in that way because when I was walking back up to the house I could have walked like two meters across from the actual direction that I took and I probably would have missed the feather altogether but the fact that I happened to walk directly in the path of where that feather was it was just amazing to me so that was another experience that oh, I pondered and, and treasured for a while because it, it really said something to me spiritually about God. And, you know, as I've had experiences like this and God has answered my prayers, He has helped me know that He is real, He has worked in real ways in my life that's just an experience that's meaningful between me and God, I have realized and began to appreciate deep in my heart that God is real and that he cares about me personally. And since I've had those experiences, my walk with God has been filled with a lot more peace because I've had an experience that was not just all head knowledge, it's gone right to my heart. And this has given me a lot more confidence in God. And it's interesting, you know, there are there are Bible writers also who've had similar experiences. 
like this where they just realize how much God knows them and how real he is. And I want to read from Psalm 139 because this expresses this thought. This is a Psalm of David. And he says this, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. So here David is expressing this very thing that God, he knows all about him, what he's doing, where he is, and he cannot flee from God's presence. And this just shows how much God knows and cares for us individually, personally. He knows where we are. And I pray that wherever you are today, wherever you are in your connection with God, you may be seeking for a deeper experience with God. You may be seeking to know that He is real in your life. You may have grown up knowing God. You may have grown up not knowing anything about God. But you may be still in that position of wondering, is God real? So I am here to say that I have found in my life God is real. And I know that when we seek Him with all our heart, we will find Him and He will make Himself known to us. So it is my prayer for you today that God will work in your life and that you will know that He is real and that He loves you and cares for you personally. God bless you. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.